Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Happy May Day. I, there's a couple of ways to say that. Like, there's this, like, sp- springy declaration of May Day. woo And then there's, like, May Day, May Day. Panic. Man overboard. I don't know. What kind of May Day are you having today? I was... Uh, Sweet Paul was um, was celebrating the first kind of May Day. I, I immediately leapt in with the second kind of May Day. Paul also says we're not allowed to do any May Day dancing well, today. No, apparently. Well, the, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, don't don't miss Paul, Paul, it's all you. It's don't, no, 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 no. No. All I said, you know, because in some <laughs> communities, the idea of maypoles and such, you know, you because you're using the ribbons, you're kind of weaving it together around the pole. Can't do that because who, there's. Who, who is doing this? Who Who is dancing around the maypole? It, it is. It was common in some cultures and some communities here in the U.S. and in past days. And you know, it was. A big I, I want to know. I want to know about these. I want to know about these places and cultures. I never lived in a fanciful May Day community with the maypole and the ribbons. I feel. I feel as if I have missed out. Google it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm going to start with this since I have no May Day experiences to share, other than like May Day, May Day, man overboard, which is apparently not what May Day is about. China is up to no good. Um, China is exploiting the global pandemic. They have been uh, arresting pro-democracy leaders in Hong Kong. They have been forcing debtor nations in Africa to sign over ownership of all kinds of national and commercial resources. They are pumping four trillion yen uh, or or the equivalent of five hundred and sixty five billion dollars into their own China 2025 infrastructure program. They are. Uh, seizing, I don't even know if the word is seizing, they are declaring ownership over portions of the South China Sea um, and declaring their sovereignty over such. Um, so while uh, while many, many, many people are focused um, on the pandemic, China is fully pressing into its thousand-year millennial project. Uh, and I just think it's important for us to recognize that um, China has a thousand-year plan. Like, they, they actually are planning for something called the Thousand-Year Empire. As Christians anticipate the, the millennial reign of Christ, the Chinese are building toward their own millennial global rule, and they are using the chaos and the desperation around the world right now during this present pandemic to capitalize in places where the rest of us uh, have, you know, or from which the rest of us have turned our attention because we're all paying attention to literally what's happening at home. So... I I don't want you to lose sight of China and its siege mentality in the midst of all of this. Um, They are playing a very, very long game. And we will, I'll be sure that we put it on the list of things that we talk with David Aikman about this coming Monday. But I wanted to pique your attention to news um, as you might see news about the South China Sea or Hong Kong or China's Belt and Road Initiative across Africa. Um, And yes, the ongoing suppression uh, and persecution of the Uyghur Muslim and Christian religious minorities in China today. All of those 
should be things that we are uh, aware of and paying attention to, even as even as we are concerned about what's going on in our own homes and right here at home in the United States of America. Matt Hawkins is up next. He and I are going to turn our attention to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom report, which was just released. And um, things are not good out there in terms of religious freedom. And so we want to be sure that we, um, we understand what's happening around the world and we bring the gospel to bear upon it. So Matt Hawkins up next. We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Matthew Hawkins. He's a public theologian working on his Ph.D. If you follow him on Twitter at MT Hawk, you know that uh, he thinks that you can write longer papers if you add more footnotes because you can hide stuff there. (laughs) That's right. It was an epiphany I had yesterday. My goodness. Yeah, I feel, nobody I feel, tells, I feel nobody like, tells you things. You just kind of. I feel like them. I have like, a new a new sense of calling because I, I feel like I get to like publicly edit you. It's kind of fun. <laughs> well, well, I'll send you my 5000 word uh, treatise. That I love I'm about it. To I love it. I love later, editing. Editing is actually like one of my like favorite therapeutic activities. I know. Uh-huh. I'm a strange well, soul. I know. Don't, don't commit to that. I'm going to send you all my seminar papers. <laughs> I love I loved to edit stuff down, man. I like to make things more concise. Yeah. Sometimes, okay. Sometimes I know. I'm well, there you go. There's off. a little personal personal revelation today. Okay. Let's talk about, um, first of all, remind people what the U.S. Uh, Commission on International Religious Freedom is. Like, let's do a little reminder sure. of that. And then give people the brief on uh, on this 2020 report. Yeah. So USERF, we we call it for short, it's the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. It was formed uh, by legislation passed in 1998 when there was a great deal of bipartisan cooperation in Congress, if you can imagine it. And they created two bodies, USERF, this one, which has congressional oversight, but is uh, it's uh, the commissioners are all volunteer. Their, their expenses are uh, – their costs are covered, but um, – it's uh, staffed <clears throat> um, by uh, nonpartisan staff, and uh, it's been going on for 20 years. And uh, their job basically is to evaluate and report on uh, international religious freedom uh, status around the world. Um, they have a, a kind of a parallel organization uh, in the State Department. It's called the uh, Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom. That's currently Sam Brownback, former governor of Kansas. And uh, those those two, um, when they're working well together, those two offices uh, function as kind of an external watchdog in USERF and then an internal, um, kind of an internal diplomatic uh, office in State Department. So they have different responsibilities, um, but their focus is the same and they're trying to figure out how best uh, the U.S. in particular can advance religious freedom around the globe. And one of those responsibilities, one of the primary responsibilities is to publish an annual report. And so USERF uh, issued its annual report this year. And one of the things it does is it can recommend uh, certain countries or now um, they can even recommend like uh, non-state actors, which in the era of terrorist organizations is a big deal. Uh, but the basic concept is countries of particular concerns or CPC, if you want to if you want to be wonky like Washingtonians, uh, they can recommend that a country be called a CPC that enables if 
the State Department and the president decide to act, it, it takes it gives them uh, rationale to impose sanctions or take other diplomatic measures uh, for the sake of basically the stick part of the carrot or, you know, the kind of carrot and stick approach to um, coax countries uh, closer to a treatment of religious freedom that that aligns with uh, human rights um, that we believe in. And so uh, new this year uh, for USURF, what, what made a lot of a big splash is that USURF recommended India be put on the CPC list. And that's a not no small task. The last time they did it, it was in 2004. Um, and if anybody's been paying attention, India for a number of years now under under Prime Minister Modi has been on a terrible trend line. Uh, it's been really, it's really been getting worse and worse. And as uh, basically uh, their sex or um, kind of politicized versions of, of Hinduism that are, are taking control of the government and squelching the religious freedom of others, including Christians and Muslims. Uh, so that was a big deal this year, uh, this week. And then also, uh, you sort of called out Amazon.com for doing business with a company that provides help, basically provides technology uh, to the Chinese government uh, that has been linked to uh, the effort to uh, detain and monitor. And frankly, it's an effort at... I don't know. They're not. They're not mass. Uh, I don't think they're mass murdering them, but they're certainly trying to erase the Uyghur population as far as uh, re-education. So I think it's kind of it could be considered a kind of soft genocide when you're trying to uh, outlaw uh, the pe- a people group uh, from the way of life and their their beliefs and their and their uh, their their ethnicity. Um, so but Amazon's been doing for- business. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to pause there for just a second, because one of the things that um, I had on my list of things to share with folks today um, is yeah. that the free Burma Rangers movie is actually going to be um, streaming for free. Um, and so wow. uh, for, for those of you who um, remember the conversation that I had back in February with Dave Eubank of free Burma Rangers um, and that what was then the forthcoming movie, the movie's now out um, and it was like a, a, a a few night release thing that you had to go to the movie theater and see, well, now it's going to be streaming free. And so I just want to encourage people um, to, to watch that this weekend. If they, um, you know, have time and inclination, obviously we need to be praying for the people who, uh, who, who live not only in Burma, but in these other countries that are highlighted um, Mm -hmm. in this particular report. So uh, Matt and I are going to take a pause when we come back, we're actually going to talk about, um, the the redesignation of Burma, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Tajikistan. Oh, right, I'm not going to Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and then we've also got these new recommendations: India, Nigeria, Russia, Syria, Vietnam, um, and then and then there's a whole another category um, as well. So we're we're going to talk about what's happening generally in these countries around the world, um, and then how the United States functions in terms of our global relationships to help improve the religious freedom of people elsewhere. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
All right, I exposed my inability to say the names of uh, many international countries just a moment ago in reporting on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom 2020 report, which is why I have Matthew Hawkins here to talk about it. Um, okay, right. Matt, how do countries get what's – what's sort of the general reason that yeah. a country would be on our, uh, you know, uh, on our radar, on our watch list? And then um, why is the United States even, even involved internationally in religious freedom sure. concerns? Yeah. Well, the, the kind of things that uh, USERF and the State Department look at with regard to international religious freedom and whether or not they uh, you know, recommend that they're a CPC or, or whatever um, are two different components. Uh, you can have religious freedom problems, uh, religious liberty problems, either because of government-directed social hostilities, which means, uh, you know, obvious things like uh, you know, the Chinese communist government uh, rounding up millions of Uyghur Muslims and putting them in, in education camps. That's a pretty obvious and aggressive uh, state act. Secondly, there are social hostilities. So you can have religious freedom issues um, that aren't necessarily directed specifically by the by the government, but are carried out um, uh, by social hostilities, meaning, you know, citizens on citizens or, uh, you know, social um, – uh, you know, other inst other social uh, societal institutions that are uh, kind of waging uh, waging battles uh, and oppressing uh, religious groups, uh, in which case a government may not be um, they're they're kind of letting uh, people do it in perpetuity and and not engaging and, and not seeking justice. So those are two the kind of two main categories. Um, but to get on the CPC list, you know, you, you've you listed kind of the the, the worst of the worst. Uh, now, there are tiers. Um, there's kind of, you know, tier one and tier two. Um, so there's a severity and then, uh, they, a few years ago, they, they amended the, um, Congress amended the list, uh, so that a country can, uh, you're either not, not on the list or off the list, but you're kind of somewhere in a tier, uh, group on the list. So theoretically, uh, the idea would be that a country that, oh, well, we do, we don't like this bad negative attention we're getting from the U S government. So, uh, we're, we're at a, you know, let's say a tier four. So we want to move to a tier three or tier two and, uh, U S government would kind of describe some criteria um, in, in talks with that government about, you know, what it needed to achieve to get, you know, have a have a lighter affiliation on the list. So a reminder there that um, elections matter because when we say elections the U.S. Matter. government, right, we're, we're talking about um, the executive branch having the opportunity to in large measure uh, guide right. and direct this. Yes, with some input from Congress. But the reality is um, the person who is the president of the United States really does profoundly affect this because yeah. even though this is a bipartisan or nonpartisan body, I mean, you know, in reality, it if you look at it, at who's on it there, you know, it leans one direction yeah. or the other, depending on who's yeah. in the Oval Office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the and the teeth uh, with regard to the the list of countries of particular concern matters when an administration gives it uh, the priority it does. Now, I will say that religious freedom within the State Department uh, thing, uh, just to kind of talk uh, wonky here for a second. Um, that's in light of other U.S. government interests, right? So uh, the ambassador at large position in USERV it was created. Uh, against the backdrop where um, a lot of people, including, you know, on both sides of the aisle, including um, Ambassador um, 
uh, or Secretary of State Albright, uh, that uh, religion just wasn't getting its due treatment uh, in the State Department diplomacy world. Um, the kind of generally in the foreign policy, religion was kind of panned as kind of a, a sub, you know, kind of a minor uh, cultural uh, flashpoint and not uh, something that ought, ought to be uh, robustly considered. Um, we're in a different age, different day and age now. Um, and you, so so that's kind of forward progress. So there's just a little little backdrop there. All right, Matt, before we run completely out of time, let's talk a little bit about this religious freedom versus public health debate yeah. that's happening right now. Um, across the country. Yeah. So um, churches, as we've, you know, tried to adapt to this new normal of the pandemic and uh, well, hopefully not new normal. I want to emphasize we're still believing this is temporary, even though it's uh, lengthy and, and, and months long um, about uh, whether or not churches can gather uh, in, in light of uh, social distancing measures. And we've had, you know, from federal government to state governments, uh, the record, uh, this, the status of religious groups has kind of been all over the map. Uh, some states have opted to recommend uh, that uh, religious group, the gatherings uh, cease, including religious groups. Uh, other states have uh, gone on, you know, have, have enforced it um, and, and actually Yeah, I mean, banned. we got the mayor of New York sending, sending, the, yeah. sending the cops to arrest people for attending oh, a funeral. Goodness, the, the New York situation. And not, seeing, and not seeing any problem with that. He doesn't see any problem with right. that. Well, and and the mm-hmm. the tone of the rhetoric between between the mayor of New York and and uh, an, or, uh, an orthodox uh, a, a community of orthodox Jews uh, is just insane. Uh, this is kind of a, the, the kind of my drumbeat is that uh, both governments got, government has to get competent in religion um, and and in communicating with religious bodies, and we as religious communities, houses of worship, we ought to have as part of our public witness an intentional. Doesn't have to be aggressive. Doesn't have to be, you know, uh, partisan political. Certainly not. Um, but it needs to be an intentional outreach um, and some kind of communication with our elected officials that we can uh, eye on or, or or take advantage of during these times of crises. Part of the reason these situations in Kentucky and New York and other places flame up between uh, religious groups and and governments is we don't talk to each other when life is normal. And that's mm-hmm. a problem. That sets us up for these kinds of situations that really can be avoided. Um, and so, and you know, we we talk about you know Christians talk about sphere sovereignty, um, about you know the authority of the church and the authority of state. And I'm I'm largely I largely harmonize with both of those. But we can I think we can uh, create too hard a wall in between there. Um, and I think houses of worship, churches. Um, synagogues, mosques, there, we, for the sake of our communities, for the sake of our, our nation, we ought to have a category for uh, kind of those two spheres overlapping, so to speak, in the Venn diagram, uh, where we communicate and we're, we're all trying to figure out in particularly crisis moments um, like pandemics. We do it frequently, you know, in the face of um, natural disasters, tornadoes and hurricanes and that kind of thing, where where state where governments and where houses of worship can assist our communities uh, for the sake of our neighbors and uh, for for a Christian, I think it's 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 part of a love of neighbor and seeking the good of our community. Uh, and we ought to have some kind of category for interacting with government that just doesn't start with this is our stuff and this is your stuff uh, and, and yeah. back off. Uh, so the, these kind relational of are really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about relational capital, and we need to build yeah, it in absolutely. times of. Uh, of peace, not in times of panic. 
All right, Matt, you and I got to leave it right there. Um, Thank you so much, as always. Um, Yeah, you know, send me what you're send me what you're writing. I am I'm good at tightening. (laughs) I'm good at tightening things up, man. Well, may your fanciful May Day community have a great weekend. Exactly. The fanciful May Day people are out there dancing, but I don't know that they're keeping social distance. I know. Matt Hawkins, thank you so much. You guys can follow him at MT Hawk. We'll be right back. What is a worldview and what is your worldview and why does your worldview matter and how is it exposed in the conversations of the day? When we talk about history itself, when we talk about education, when we talk about marriage, when we talk about children, when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about war, and yes, when we talk about disease and pandemic, um, our worldview is exposed. And so if, if you've never really considered your worldview, I would say that this is a good time to do that. Am I really operating out of a genuinely biblical worldview? Um, or do I have all kinds of other ideas woven in there? Um, and do I ultimately have a gospel worldview? I don't even des- describe my worldview as biblical anymore. I describe my worldview as gospel. I have a redemptive worldview. My worldview is informed by the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. But when you use the term biblical, you tend to get um, you know smacked upside the head with somebody proof texting something from the Old Testament that you're not currently abiding by um, because you live under the freedom of the gospel. And so I describe my worldview as gospel worldview or redemptive worldview. It gives me the opportunity to then explain those terms if necessary. So I like to have these uh, worldview conversations with Dan DeWitt, who leads the Center for Biblical Apologetic and Public Christianity at Cedarville University. You can find him at theolatte.com or you can find him right here next. We'll be right back. Most likely, you enjoy making your own choices. We all like to be in control of things. So when did that start for you? When was the first time you thought, I'm making my own decision here? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I bet there's never been a time in your life when you didn't want to be in control. In fact, you probably fought for independence in your grade school and high school years. So why are we shocked when our own teens want to step out on their own? High-control parents have a way of stifling creativity and knocking the ambition right out of their kids. So how about it? Let the rope out a little. Today, give your teen a little space to make their own choices. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Again, ParentingTodaysTeens.org. There's been, during the break, an ongoing debate about the uh, origins of the Maypole. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But I now understand. I now understand from uh, Paul's northerner perspective that after you've been cooped up inside uh, under the blanket of winter, that apparently fancifully dancing around a pole and weaving your ribbons together with others is a It's just part of the celebration. It's just Mm -hmm. part of it. The idea is we're celebrating that it's greening up. It's beautiful. (laughs) 
Okay. There's more. Apparently, the paganism goes on. Dan. I don't know. Okay. Oh, man. So I'm so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's it's Friday. I'm supposed to be a little bit provocative. You know, get get people all juiced. Usually, up you okay. Southerners make me laugh. Right now, you're getting me a little ticked. Sad. It's going to be sad. Dan DeWitt is here. He leads the Center for Biblical Apologetics and Public Christianity at Cedarville University. You can find him at theolatte.com. That's like God and coffee. Theolatte. Dot com. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Always Uh-oh. good to be with you. Oh. Yeah. So um, I loved the flip book that you made. So fun. Um, thank you for that. Um, let's let me just start with a, a completely wide open worldview question. Why do people believe what they do? Why, why do I believe what I do? Why do you believe what you do? And why do other people believe what they do? Well, of course, it's shaped by a number of factors um, in terms of how we were were raised, where we were raised, experiences we've had throughout our lifetime, people that we trust as authorities to give us trustworthy information about the way we should make sense of the world. And so there's no one who's kind of comes into the world as a blank slate, only processes data, information, and facts, well-reasoned arguments, and has an entirely rational worldview. But rather, we have a number of factors that form why we believe what we believe. That doesn't discredit them. Just because you were raised in a Christian family doesn't automatically mean Christianity is not objectively true. Just because you were raised in an atheistic family doesn't mean atheism is objectively true. So there's always going to be in every person's life a moment that makes you stop, reflect, and consider that very question, why you believe what you believe. And so the freedom, you know, the the freedom that we enjoy to think and cultivate our own conscience about something, and then, you know, the freedom to change religions if if we so you know if we feel so led the, the the freedom to convert when we talk about freedom i do think that it's hard for people who have never um spent time considering what it what it is like for people who live under oppressive regimes i'm i'm thinking here about china mm-hmm. because when does that moment yeah. come for a person who's raised in North Korea, or when does that moment come for a person raised in China um, who really is not allowed to think freely? They're not allowed to convert. They're not, I mean, the, uh, so help me, um, help me develop that empathetic heart and mind mm-hmm. for those who live in places and are raised by people, raised by atheists um, or raised by people contrary to the Christian gospel and in environments where conversion is not allowed. Well, that's a great question, because um, as sociologists say, wherever we're placed in time and in place, right, that there are plausibility structures, which are just the way most people make sense of the world. And wherever you are, if you're in an atheistic um, nation, then you're going to think that atheism is more plausible. And so that's always going to be a, a, a factor and what makes sense to us. But when it comes to making people believe something, it turns out we actually can't do that. I mean, if someone were to threaten your life and say, if you don't believe that you are a polka-dotted zebra, um, then I'm going to end your life. So believe you're a polka-dotted zebra. Well, it turns out you actually can't truly believe that. (laughs) You could say you believe it, but you can't truly change your belief in that kind of 
forced way. And so the hope of the gospel is that internally people are thinking through, even if their government says this is the only allowed worldview, people still internally um, are thinking through and asking these questions, and they can change their belief even if they don't articulate them. Of course, the call to Christianity is more than just a call to an internal decision, and that's where we do need to have a great deal of empathy for people who, when they make that decision external, um, are going to be persecuted and perhaps even killed. Presenting our worldview, um, making making what we know to be true known to others, right? The proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind and all of the ways in which we do that um, becomes an essential part of this because there are people being raised in environments, under regimes, in households um, of non-belief or of wrong belief. And so those of us who do who do know the truth, who have been you know, set free by the gospel, it becomes incumbent upon us just in terms of love of our fellow man to share the gospel, to share the good news of the gospel with other people in order that they too may know. Um, and so I just, I just thought I would till that soil a little bit with you today because I, I don't think we often just go back and do the most basic conversations. Um, we tend to do the applied part of the conversations, like how does, mm-hmm. you know, how does my Christian worldview apply to the pandemic or apply to the conversation about marriage or identity? But I thought that it was important maybe just to periodically go back and sort of build the build the case for understanding that not everybody actually sees the world the same way, and there are reasons for that. And so if I'm going to enter into a conversation mm-hmm. about the gospel with somebody, I need to understand how and where and by whom they were raised in order that I can have um, – I can begin to understand how the gospel might be presented to them in a way that would – open their mind and heart. Absolutely. And, I, you know, the ability to be curious is, is, a, is often a skill set that Christians neglect, and we really need to revive to be curious about someone else's story. That's a sign of our care for them, and um, that's one of the best avenues into a meaningful conversation about Jesus as we listen to them, where they came from, what they believe, why they believe it. Um, Often that affords us with the opportunity to begin sharing the gospel. So we don't listen just to form a counter-argument. We listen because we care, we're curious, and as we have opportunity, we tell them how we've found life. Not that Christianity is somehow relativized, it's true for me and not true for you, but the person matters, their story matters, and that's a great way to open the door to talk about our faith. Mm, I love that. Um, all right, Dan, um, we got all kinds of uh, of worldview conversations that we could be having today. I, I have this one, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to tee it up, and then we're going to take a break and come back and talk about it. So this is from the United Kingdom. There's a biological female who gave birth to a baby. We would call that person a mother, but this person identifies as a man, and so wants um, to be referred to on the birth certificate as the child's father. Now, that individual has recently lost an appeal before a UK court, but is now um, appealing that to the equivalent of the UK's Supreme Court. I'd just like to talk with you about um, the confusion in this and then also what it says about our cultural moment that you could actually get a court to hear such a case. So that conversation up next with Dan DeWitt. We'll be right back. And I 
Continuing my conversation with Dr. Dan DeWitt, who leads the Center for Biblical Apologetics and Public Christianity at Cedarville University. You can find him at theolatte.com. You can look at his sketches. He, he draws. He writes. He does all kinds of creative things. He's, I'm a little jealous of all that uh, he's involved in. All right. So, Dan, we have um, confusion. I, this is the, the conversation about this is not new. But I'm but I'm fairly yeah. confident that most of us do not have well-formed conversational talking points on transgenderism um, even yet. Like uh, the best we know to say is God created us intentionally male and female in his image. And so the way that God has created something um, is the way it is like that is reality. And so there's a departure from reality when a person wants to argue that even though they have physically given birth, which is a sign that you are a biological woman, um, that that person would then go to a court of law and plead to be named as not only male, but as father. Tell us why the language of mother and father actually matters. Well, you're absolutely right. There's really not a better answer than either this world has a design or it doesn't. If it does have a design, that means that we are um, going to flourish when we understand the design. In the same way that if I buy my child a Christmas gift and decide to start putting it together without the instructions, at some point there becomes that critical moment, you know, before 6 a.m. where I have to go back to the instructions because I've put things together wrongly. And so it matters because this is the design for the world. We're only going to flourish as we understand the design. If I don't understand the law of gravity, I'm going to have a really hard time if I go to the Grand Canyon and want to explore. And so we have to lovingly constantly come back to the fact that God does have a design. We have all fallen from that design. And in our, our departure from God's design, we experience brokenness. The answer is not to go further in our brokenness. It's to return to God's design. God designed us as men and women, um, and mother and father is part of that role. I'm taking notes, if you hear me typing in the background, um, because this is actually a conversation that, you know, I'm, I've got kids of an age that, you know, now need to be equipped on this particular uh, conversation. And because the world that they're moving into as young adults is a world where there's a tremendous amount of confusion about not only identity, but marriage as well. And so if we could turn to the marriage conversation um, here, uh, I was looking at the U.S. marriage rate the report just came out from the CDC a couple of days ago that the mm-hmm. um, that the US marriage rate has now dropped to a historic low now I recognize these numbers are from 2018 apparently it takes us a couple of years to do our math related to this but <laughs> federal data that goes back more than a century you know has never seen a marriage rate this low talk with us about marriage why marriage matters why it is defined um, the way that it is defined in Scripture, and and why why that matters for us as a as a culture and a country. Yeah, the marriage is um, so vital to a society for the um, the producing the production of children, the raising of children, um, the forming of a worldview that leads to um, people who care for their neighbor and want to serve in their society. And so, of course, we're going to see a drop in marriage as there's a departure from God's design. So marriage was at an all-time high after World War II. It was at over 16 percent. Now it's down at six point something percent. Um, Again, this comes back to the conversation. Is there a design for the world or 
is the world simply a chaos in which we create our own design? And the way you answer that, it, worldview is really simple in terms of the way we understand worldviews. It's there's some basic questions that shape your trajectory, right? And so the way you answer that question, does God have a design for men and, men and women? Yes or no? That has massive implications. And one of those implications relates to children. It relates to marriage. And the further we get from God's design, the more that we're going to see marriage rate drop. And let's be frank, too. For a lot of us, we've come from broken families. So there's myself speaking. We understand the um, the anxiety related to marriage. So there's a lot of factors in this. And and I also, you know, I think that highlighting in each of these conversations that redemption is possible. Redemption is possible. There is um, that which is broken can be redeemed. And I think that we as Christians, you know, we can't always just be pointing um, to the brokenness and to what is wrong. We can't always be Mm -hmm. picking out the pepper. We have to be people who are salt and we have to be people who Mm. come at these conversations from a redemptive worldview. And we say the gospel is real. Easter really does change everything. Um, it, it, it changes how we understand ourselves and our place in the world and every relationship that we have. And I don't know anyone, Dan, at this point who doesn't have, um, familial brokenness somewhere in their life, like, right, either in their own personal lived Mm -hmm. experience of being divorced or having been raised in a home, um, that was broken or now being in a marriage where there are children who are not their own because their spouse you know, was married before the marriage that they're in now. I mean, that's my circumstance, right? I mean, and so um, these are conversations that we all need to learn to have. We need to learn to have them with grace and mercy. And um, But if we're going to have a witness in the culture, it's going to be on these fronts, on the fronts of identity, on the fronts mm-hmm. of things as um, uh, as foundational as marriage, and certainly in how we raise our children, because we're raising our children together. Right. I mean, I'm raising my kids with who lives next door and down the street and goes to the same school Mm -hmm. and in the same church. And right. These communities where not only faith is formed, but identity is formed and a sense of purpose and belonging and what they're going to do in the future with this world that we're going to hand to them when, you know, when we die. So that's absolutely right. yeah, Yeah. So this 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 cultivation of worldview. I mean, this is really a circular conversation. I realize that. Um. Maybe well, maybe I'll let you talk about this as we as we conclude our conversation. How do you think that what kids are experiencing right now in terms of this COVID-19 global pandemic, how is this influencing their worldview in ways that as a parent, I need to be aware? Well, I would think what is going to happen anytime there's a major calamity is not necessarily it does it is formative but i think it reveals more than it forms and so in the same way that if you have sunglasses on and you walk into a building that's dark you you you've forgotten at some point when you're outside that you have sunglasses on you walk in and you realize oh i need to re-examine the way i'm looking at things right you take your glasses off and in a moment like this people are so accustomed to looking at the world a certain way and you hit a calamity, and for the first time in a while, you stop and reflect on the way you see the world. And so what I would encourage people to do is to recognize that this pandemic is going to, to reveal 
as much as it actually forms. And I would wholeheartedly agree with you, Carmen. We are, as we're having a witness with our neighbors in the world, it's not as we're standing on one side saying, here, God has a design, you're experiencing brokenness. We're broken people too. And we recognize God has a design, as as the North American Mission Board put out a really helpful evangelistic strategy with those three points. God has a design. Um, deviation from God's design leads to brokenness. And the remedy for that is the gospel. The gospel allows us to reclaim and repursue God's design. And through that, we can experience spiritual and human flourishing. I love it. Dan, um, thank you, as always, not only for joining us, but for Uh, the good content you post at theolatte.com. We appreciate your being with us here today. We're praying for, uh, for you and yours. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. All right, friends, we'll be right back. You too. All right, let's see if in one minute I can give you the 10 steps to starting a vegetable garden over the weekend. Huh? Choose the right location. This is from the National Gardening Association. I I think that we should um, get out there and start, start cultivating the land around us. It would be healthy for all of us. Um, all right, choose the right location. Select your vegetables. Prepare the soil. Check planting dates. Apparently, not everybody can plant the same stuff at the same time. I get that. Um, plant the seeds. I would just recommend buying some little plants and planting them. Don't bother with the seed process. Add water. Keep the weeds out. Give your plants room to grow. Fertilize as needed. Um, and then reap what you sow. Okay, this is all super duper biblical, by the way. And so if you wanted to um, cultivate your your sense of who God is, just remember that he has always intended that we live in a garden. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you and I were designed to live in a garden, an arboreal paradise with the Lord our God. Mm, think about that as you're planting your garden this spring. we got another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.